All right, welcome back here. Invite you to come back in and have a seat. We're continuing our sermon series this morning, looking through the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning we're in chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 21. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 21. And um, some of you may be familiar with uh, a certain set of laws that date back to the founding of this country. And, uh, and I've lived on the, on the West Coast my whole life. I was raised in California. Uh, we're part of those people that moved to Oregon from California. Sorry about that. But all my kids were born here. Eh, eh, kinda. They're Argonians. They're natives. They belong. Finesse and I are exiles and strangers. Uh, so I'm not familiar with these kinds of laws that go back to the founding of our country, but they're still on the books in about 13 states. And these laws are called blue laws. Blue laws. And, and blue laws are laws that are based on the original biblical injunction against working on the Sabbath. I'll read part of it to you. This is from the Ten Commandments. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So blue laws are laws that are based on this fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. So, for example, it's currently illegal in 13 states for car dealerships to be open on Sundays. It's illegal to hunt on Sundays in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania. That's ridiculous. Uh, Many states prohibit the sale of alcohol before noon on Sundays. Uh, Even some leisurely activities like clam digging was illegal in some states even 60 years ago. So hunting, not cool all day, but drinking afternoon, totally fine. (laughs) So what is permitted on the Sabbath? This is the question that Matthew uh, directs us to in his gospel account here. But I'm going to suggest to us, and as we look through this passage, that Matthew's aim isn't so much to show us what is permitted and what is not permitted on the Sabbath, but his aim is to show us who the Sabbath points us towards. Because we will see that the Sabbath isn't so much about the details of what to do and what not to do to rest, but it's more about who it is that we rest in. So I'm going to read to us Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to read to us verses 1 all the way to 21. This is the word of the Lord. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, 
nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, that I desire mercy and, I do not, and, and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them to not make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and I will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. This is God's word for us this morning. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this text. And Father, thank you for a Sabbath rest. Father, many of us, many of us come with weary souls this morning. The troubles of the week, the troubles with our spouse, the troubles with our children, the troubles with finances, the troubles with relationships, the troubles with their church, and we're weary, and we need rest. We need a Sabbath rest. And we pray something miraculous would happen. We pray that the Holy Spirit would come down through the preaching of your most holy word. And it would bring rest to our weary souls. If that happens, it will be a miracle. Because only you, the one true God, can meet us and comfort us in our time of need. So we ask you to do it. We plead with you to do it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this text unpacks nicely for us this morning, and we'll we'll walk through it in these different sections, sections 1 to 8, sections 9 to 14, and sections verses 15 through 21. And we'll unpack them under the three headings of the hunger, the healing, the servant. So young people, if you're taking notes this morning, Young and old alike, the three points of the sermon are the hunger, the healing, the servant. And young people, the key word this morning, if you want to write it down and come tell me afterwards, the key word this morning, starting now, is Sabbath. So count how many times I say that word and come tell me afterwards. Point one, the hunger. 
The opening of this chapter here, it gives us a picture of Jesus in his grandeur. This is, this is Jesus in his greatness. This is Jesus in his splendor. You see, Jesus in this passage, he exalts himself over and above the realities that the people of God hold dearest. He takes the things that the people of God hold dearest and he puts himself above them. He elevates himself above the most sacred of things. He says that he's greater than the Sabbath. He says that he's greater than the temple. And he says that he is a higher than the scriptural commands themselves. The three things that the people of God at this time probably took most seriously, the Sabbath, the scriptures, and the temple, he says that he's greater than all of them. It's an awesome claim. In fact, three times he says it in this passage. He says, more is here. He says, greater is here. Verse 6, he says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. He's speaking to the majesty of his person. He's making an audacious sort of claim. We sometimes look at the teachings of Jesus and we say, what a wonderful moral teacher. This man just said that he's greater than the entire temple system. This man just said that he's the Lord of the Sabbath itself. Let's look at the occasion for this. So Jesus, he's walking with his disciples. They're walking through a grain field on the Sabbath and they're hungry. And so they simply begin to just pick heads of grain and to eat, which I guess we should note would have been permitted under Jewish law, under gleaning provisions. So they aren't breaking, they're not stealing, okay? But the religious leaders and the Pharisees here, they're, they're aghast and they, they, they challenge Jesus. But they don't challenge Jesus because Jesus is eating. In fact, the text never tells us that Jesus himself is eating. They challenge Jesus because his disciples are eating, verse 2. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So they may not have been breaking some kind of civil law against, against gleaning or stealing, but the religious leaders, the Pharisees, are saying that they're breaking one of the Ten Commandments. And we read it just a few moments ago, that on the seventh day there should be no work, no work of any kind, it says in the fourth commandment there. That on the Sabbath day there should be zero work of any kind, and it lists all the people that are included in that, in that command, and it's everybody, even the livestock, it says. The most, the most mundane of creatures, of animals, even on rest. So they're plucking heads of grain. The disciples here are doing what laborers would do the other six days of the week. They're picking grain. So for the sake of the community moral standards and for the sake of honoring God as he's revealed himself in the Torah, the Pharisees say they must stop this careless practice now. This is a careless practice. The, the, the moral nature of the community is at, at, at risk here. Uh, God is not being honored as, as he ought. This, this has to stop. And by the way, we should note, I should note to you that at this time, there were, there were many, 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 many different interpretations about what could be done on the Sabbath. And sometimes it was, it was even based on who your teacher or who your rabbi was. 
Some said that you could, you could walk a, a mile's journey on the Sabbath. Some said you could walk three and before it was constituted work. So there's a variety of, of interpretation out there in terms of what constitutes work. Which leads us to the principle of this first point. And the principle is this. That the moral law, the moral law can either be a burden or it can be a means to flourishing. The moral law of God can either be a way to enslave people or it can be a gift. I mean, just, just stop and just think about it for a moment. This is, it's, not, it's not rocket science to think about what the purpose of the Sabbath was. The Sabbath was intended. Was it intended to be a burden or was it intended to bring to be, to be a gift, to be a means of flourishing? Was it intended to be another duty or was it intended to bring refreshment, to restore that which had been lost? Was it intended to drain a weary soul or was it intended to be food for the soul, to lift up the downtrodden, to lift up the weak, to lift up that weary soul? Was it intended to further empty the body and the heart or was it intended to refill the heart, the mind, the body? The Sabbath was a gift to God's people. The Sabbath was a gift of God. Sabbath is almost uh, synonymous with the word shalom, which means peace. Shalom has the sense of, of wholeness, of, of everything being set to its rights, is the way that N.T. Wright describes it. The world being set to its rights, the way that things ought to be. And the Sabbath, the Sabbath was a gift to God's people as an opportunity, as a time to stop, to refresh, to reflect, to savor in the goodness of God himself to us. But you see here that the Pharisees have taken the good gift of the Sabbath, the good commandment of God, and they've made it into a duty. They've made it into a duty. They've made it into something that doesn't ultimately bring human flourishing. Now, how have they done that? There is an underlying principle how they have done this that gets at the heart of what every single human being deals with on some level. The reason that they've turned the good commandment of God into a duty, into a burden, gets at something that every single one of our hearts instinctively does. And that is our hearts, in their natural bent, are geared towards, aimed towards, bent towards religion, duty, and performance. They're, they're, they're bent towards religion, duty, and performance. And, and by that, I, I simply mean by religion that, that the way that we relate to God is by being good. Religion is based on the principle that if I perform, then I am accepted. And every human heart sort of bends that way and, 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 and leans that way, saying the way that I can make myself right is through some kind of external performance, the way that God will accept me, the way that others will accept me, the way that I'm right in this world is by a certain level kind of duties, a certain behavior, a certain set of rules, a kind of religion of sorts. But this is completely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
the defining point. This is the defining point of what makes Christianity absolutely different, which is totally upside down from every other religion in the world. And you may be sitting here thinking, okay, yes, this is exactly why I don't like organized religion. Acceptance by following the rules. It's suppressing, it's a weight, it's a burden, it's a construct just to control people. Okay, but the other approach to life is to be defined by throwing off all religion and simply being true to yourself. And at the end of the day, just being happy with who you are. Happy with your own level of self-fulfillment. But don't you see, don't we see what a burden that is unto itself as well? Still carries with it the weight of performance and duty. Living up to one's own standards. Living up to just being whoever exactly I want to be. The performance is now subject to the whims and desires of your own heart. I was talking about this, this, this principle with Joel this week and just acknowledging how, how fickle my own heart is. If, if I were to try to live by a standard where I was uh, uh, some kind of self-fulfillment of the true me, I would be like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. My own heart, my own desires, my own whims, they, 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 they come and they go. They're constantly changing They're subjective within myself. And it's completely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is not about performance that leads to acceptance. Everything else says performance leads to acceptance. But the gospel says you are accepted by the free grace of Jesus Christ. You are finished, you are accepted by his finished work in your place, on your behalf, as a substitute. Which then simply leads to a heart that's free to obey. It leads to a heart that simply can now desire uh, the things of God and rest in them and delight in them. Not as a means to now be right with God, because all the acceptance, all the justification, all the rightness with God is freely given to you by the finished work of Jesus. It's just yours by faith. You just lay hold of it by faith and it's yours. Right now, if you are in Christ, you cannot be more accepted in God's eyes than you are in this moment. You can't. Because your acceptance is not based on your finished work. Your acceptance is not based on your performance, on your duty, on your acts of religion. They're just not. So now your obedience, when you're free in Christ and you're in Jesus and you're resting in him and you're finding all your hope and your identity and your strength in him, now your obedience is simply a way to just get more of him, to taste him more, to delight in him more, to savor him more, to enjoy his goodness all the more. But it has nothing to do with your acceptance. It has absolutely nothing to do with your acceptance. And Jesus talks this way to religious people and he talks this way to irreligious people. He talks to people who find their identity and hope in the things that they do and he finds this way to to talk to people that that, that have totally eschewed all matters of religion. Think of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler says, uh, all these things I have kept, what do I lack? (laughs) He He thinks that he was morally perfect. But then he goes to the woman at the well in John 4. When she says, I have no husband, Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband because you've had five. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. 
So he talks the same way. He approaches both the highly religious person and he talks to the completely irreligious person. And he says, either way is not the way to finding acceptance. It's not the way to human flourishing. It's not the way to find rest. He says the only place to find rest, to find acceptance, is through the free gift of the gospel. And you know what? That is radically offensive. It's so offensive that verse 14 is in this passage. When the Pharisees went out, they conspired against him how to destroy him. The passage that Michelle read to us from John 5. They plotted how they were going to kill him. And you see, you see how Jesus so brilliantly addresses the Pharisees. (laughs) He addresses them on their own terms in a brilliant and sweeping fashion in the matter of just a few words. In the course of just a few words here from verses three to seven, Jesus quotes from the Torah, he quotes from Samuel, and he quotes from Amos. The Pharisees are telling Jesus that his disciples are acting unbiblically. So Jesus takes them straight to the text. He takes them straight to the text of scripture and he says, haven't you read, verse three, verse five, haven't you read? Don't you know what this book actually teaches? You're coming to me and telling me that my disciples are acting unbiblically? Have you read the Bible? And in a sweeping fashion, he gets at the heart of what the scriptures are teaching. And the middle example, I'll elucidate for us for just a moment, gets to the heart of the, of the matter. You see the argument that's being made here. The argument that's being made here in the middle where it says in verse four, um, excuse me, verse five, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? You see, the argument that he's making here is that someone's working on the Sabbath And that's someone who's working on the Sabbath are the priests. They are profaning the Sabbath, it says. And yet they are guiltless. Look at Numbers 28 says it like this to be sure. It says, on the Sabbath day, two male lambs a year old without blemish and two tenths of fine flour for grain offering mixed with oil. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. Did you catch that? Moses makes clear for us in Numbers that it's on the Sabbath. It's on the Sabbath. It's on the Sabbath. It's on the Sabbath. So someone is working on the Sabbath, and yet it says that they're guiltless. And everyone would agree with this. The Pharisees would agree that the priests aren't guilty because they're working on the Sabbath. The issue could be pressed because the fourth commandment does say no work of any kind, but the Pharisees know that the priests are working on the Sabbath and the Pharisees know that they're clean because of it. Now, why? Why is that? The reason for this is because the place where the work is done. In other words, the place of their work, the temple overcomes the act of them working and therefore cancels the guilt. It's a higher principle that's at work here. It's a higher principle that the place of the work sanctifies the act of the work. And then Jesus, after kind of making this principle known for us, 
makes yet again another audacious claim and says that something greater than the temple itself is here. He is. He is the true temple of God. He is the true meeting place between God and men. And his presence comes to them in sheer grace, not through the temple sacrifice, but through his final sacrifice on the cross. There is no more temple system because Jesus himself is the temple. There is no more sacrifice because Jesus is the sacrifice that's once for all for his people. He's in their presence. God is mediated to his people through the man Christ Jesus. And he can only call himself the true and greater temple because his eyes are fixed on the cross. The only way he could possibly do that, the only way that he knows that he can abolish the temple and call himself the temple is because he knows that he's going to be that final, perfect sacrifice. And he closes verse 8 by saying that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And we'll close the sermon in a few moments when we elucidating that. But this point was called the hunger. Because Jesus himself is the only one that can satisfy that true hunger. He's the one who's with the disciples who are plucking uh, heads of grain. And this is the occasion for him to say that he is the one that really brings satisfying rest for the weary and weak soul. I saw something this week when I was studying this passage that for some reason I had never seen before. It's, it's, a, it's, it's not a super profound point. But this comes after the famous call of Jesus that we preached on last week. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And then he goes into chapter 12 and he talks about the kind of rest that he brings to us. The kind of rest that's not just found in observing some kind of day, but the kind of rest that can actually bring refreshment and life to a weary soul. That's point one. Point two, the healing. Point two, the healing. Jesus goes on from there. Uh, literally and figuratively in his teaching of this point. Verse 9 and 10 says that he went on from there and entered their synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Now Matthew tells us that, that, the, that they're intentionally trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus in this kind of question. They think that they just got him so that they might be able to accuse him. Now, uh, commentators will suggest to us that uh, there was a position among the religious leaders, among the Pharisees, that did allow for some kind of healing, some kind of treatment on, on the Sabbath. But it was only for a life-threatening kind of sickness. It was only if, if this was a life-or-death kind of matter could this be dealt with on the Sabbath. Acute matters can be dealt with on the Sabbath, but not chronic matters. And a withered hand is not in the category of acute. A withered hand is in the category of being a chronic problem. 
So in the mind of the Pharisees, this was a violation of the Sabbath law. And the, the religious leaders, they, they probably thought they had a, a pretty uh, gracious and pious answer. Hey, we'll deal with the emergencies. You know, of course, of course, if this is life or death, we'll, we'll take care of it. We're not cold-hearted people after all. But everything else out of honor to God, we'll, we'll, wait, we'll wait the 24 hours. It's as almost as if they could say something like, my heart goes out to you, sir, but my love for God is greater, and I'll see you tomorrow. And Jesus, he's just simply not impressed with this kind of sleight of hand. I can't just think about it. Think about the purpose of the command of the Sabbath. It's to restore It's to bring healing. It's to bring wholeness back to a weary and tired people. And Jesus just is not impressed that this day has become a day for religious showing off. You know, I like the the way that it's told in Luke's gospel. Makes it a little bit more um, intense about the one who's fallen into the well. He said, which one of you having, this is Luke 14, which one of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not pull him out immediately? And they could not reply to these things. He's just making a very common sense argument. If your son has fallen in a well on the Sabbath day, what are you going to do? Like, look down the well and say like, hey, bud, just hold tight for the next 12 to 13 hours. We'll be, you'll be good. We're honoring God right now. We'll, talk, well, we can't toss you down a sandwich. Mom can't make that right now, sorry. That might be work. Throwing it. He makes just a common sense argument about the nature of the Sabbath. He says, look, who, if your son fell in a well, would not pull him out? Or in this text, who, if one of your sheep fell in, would not just go pull him out? And, 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 and sheep here, it's probably intentional to say sheep as, as, as the weakest and, and, and meekest and most vulnerable of creatures here. Jesus is saying, who would not help the most weakest and the most vulnerable and the smallest and the seemingly most insignificant creatures? Who would not just pull them out? How much more worth is a a human being than the most vulnerable of creatures? And I I can even hear Jesus in his way of of saying uh, and comparing the sheep, thinking of the way that he considers us. As, as, as weak, as, as vulnerable, as helpless, as lost, as stuck in a well without his help. We can't get out. That's how some of us feel this morning. Some of us feel like we are helpless, weak, vulnerable sheep. And there's no way out of this well without some kind of divine intervention. And you think because it's the Sabbath or because today's the Lord's Day that God's just going to rest from that? That he's not going to reach down in order to honor his name? He's going to honor his name by not helping the most weak and the most vulnerable among us? I'm sliding into my third point. I'll get critiqued on Wednesday for this, but I'm sliding into my third point here. That he's the servant. 
He's the king who comes by serving. He's the king who, as Joel said at the beginning of King Forevermore, he could have been the king that, that, that put the stars in the skies like chandeliers and his glories on display and all that he's made and all that he's done. That would have been sufficient. He would have displayed his glory. He would have been the magnificent God that he is and he could have left us alone. But that's not the kind of God that he is. He's the suffering servant. He's the one in whom the Father delights and the one the Father is well pleased. He's the one that comes to a bruised reed and doesn't knock it over, doesn't crush it further. He comes to a smoldering wick and he doesn't snuff it out. Think of how weak a reed is. You know, if you've ever been out in a marsh and you see a duck fly by and land on a reed, even a duck can crush a reed unless I shoot it first. What in the world? (laughs) What was that? (laughs) There's no hunting on Sundays. (laughs) The Sabbath is meant to heal. The Sabbath is meant to restore, nurture, to bring close, to renew, to set right. And so in the most obvious of acts, the most obvious common sense thing to do, Jesus heals the man with the withered hand. Is it right to do good on the Sabbath? Of course it is. And he reaches out and he heals him. Which leads to the third point, the servant. The servant. Jesus describes in this Isaiah passage, this Isaiah passage rather, is describing very weak things. As I said A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. He will not snuff out. A smoldering wick. Have you ever seen a candle when there's no wax left in the jar and it's just barely holding on for dear life? The breath of an infant would blow it out. Weak things are being described here. You know, God has men at times do very strong and mighty works for him. God has, he has Samson's who can stand on the top of hills. He has men that are mighty and lion-like. But most of us and many of us are a timid and, and, and trembling people. Frightened, often, concerned about the future. A fearful little flock. When temptations come, we're often taken like birds in a snare. When trials threaten us, we feel like we're ready to faint. Yet as weak as, as, as we are, And because we are weak, this promise is made especially to us. That he will not break a bruised reed and he will not snuff out a smoldering wick. Because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. 
You know, there's a place later in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 23, verse 34, where he says, Jesus says this. He said, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you killed and crucified, and some you flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Did you catch that? Jesus says, I send you prophets. I send you wise men. I send you scribes. He doesn't say the Father does. He said, I does. He's putting himself on par with God. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He made the universe as we know it. He's Lord over everything. He speaks everything into creation. He upholds this room, your breath, your body by the word of his power. He's the Lord of absolutely everything. He made everything. He upholds everything. Everything was made for him and by him. Jesus never says, thus saith the Lord. Jesus always says, I say unto you. Because he's the Lord. Listen to what N.T. Wright says when he describes Jesus. He says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means everything or it means nothing. It is either the more devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world of in-between. You catch that? If Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the Lord over everything, if he's the Lord of the Sabbath, if he's the one that says the prophets, if he's the one that says, I say unto you, if he is life itself that has walked among us, then we owe him absolutely everything. We ought fall at his feet and say, we are yours. We sang it this morning. I give my life to honor this, the love of Christ, the Savior King. But he's the Lord of the Sabbath as well. You know, I'll close with this. A couple times... We've preached through the opportunity to talk about the Sabbath. The first time was when we preached through Genesis. And when we preached through Genesis and we got to the seventh day and it says that God rested. And the second time was a few years later when we preached through Exodus and we got to the fourth commandment. And it says that we should not do any work that day. But we should ask ourselves, why did God give us a Sabbath? God finished creating the world. Does he grow tired or weary? No. Does God ever exhaust or expend any of himself that can, in some kind of depleted sort of fashion? No. No. We do. We work and we get tired. We work and we need to eat. We work and we need to sleep. We work and we need to drink water and, and replenish our bodies. God is not like that. God does not grow weary and tired. So why does God give us a Sabbath? 
On the seventh day, God looked over everything that he had made and he simply basked in the goodness that he had done. He looked at all creation and it brought him great delight. To the point when he said, let's just step back and let's just look at the beauty and the grandeur and the awesomeness of creation itself. And he was satisfied. And he was satisfied. He looked at what he had done and he said, it is finished. And he was satisfied. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ was expended of all of his energy. The way that you die, oftentimes in crucifixion, is by suffocation. You don't have the strength to hold yourself up any longer, longer so your lungs collapse. He was absolutely expended. And he died, and he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. And the moment before he died, he let out the cry, it is finished. So that you and I can now have that Sabbath rest in him. Rest for our weary souls. He won't, he won't crush a bruised reed because he was crushed in your place. He won't snuff out a smoldering wick because life was snuffed out of him. And now you can enter into his rest. Rest for your weary soul. And you will find a loving Savior whose arms are open wide, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, who will bring you rest. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning as we close. While we were so I was praying this morning and as we were worshiping and thinking about the nature of this text and the nature of bringing rest and the nature of healing, I thought it'd be appropriate, the Spirit, Spirit, Holy Spirit prompted me during worship that we should have a time now where we can pray for one another. I so invite the elders and others to, to come forward here for a moment. And I just want to invite you. I want to invite you if you're weary, If you're, if, you're, if you're tired and you just need prayer, that there's prayer here for you. And I also want to pray for healing too. That it was right and good for Jesus to heal the moment that he saw a need. And so we want to pray for you. So let me, let me pray to close the sermon. We'll have a few moments of reflection as we just ask the Holy Spirit how he would have us respond and then Joel will start playing for us and we can, we can, we can just rest and pray for one another to rest in the, the Sabbath rest that Jesus offers us. And then I'll come up in a few moments and transition us to communion. Father, we ask for your help. We thank you for the rest that the Lord Jesus gives us. We pray now that we would each lay hold of that rest by faith. We pray for 
troubled marriages. We pray for loss of jobs. We pray for the need of finances. We pray for estranged children. We just pray, God, that you would supernaturally give us your rest. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.